And our scripture reading today is 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Nate. If I haven't met you yet, good to be with you this morning. Um, if this is your first time here or maybe second time here, uh, just up front, I know stepping into a series of gospel and sexuality, uh, it's not an easy topic. Um, but just want to say up front, no matter where you are coming from related to what you, how you view human sexuality, uh, really glad you are here. Um, we have been looking... Uh, over the last three weeks, at how the gospel transforms what we do with our bodies. And we've been working through a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young urban church in the city of Corinth, which, as we've said repeatedly over weeks, this was a city that was known for its sexual license. All things are good there. And yet, um, what's interesting is Paul, as he addresses this church, um, He doesn't lead with ethics. He leads with the gospel. And we saw this the last couple weeks, but the kind of crescendo of the last two weeks has been this statement at the end of chapter 6. Paul says this, So glorify God with your body. It is hard to overstate just how revolutionary that statement was to them in their day. And it's also hard to state how radical of a concept it is in our day. But in order to understand this, let me just say a couple of things up front. Um, there's a guy named Kyle Harper. He's a classic historian, and he's the author of the book called From uh, Shame to Sin. And he's just an expert in what it was like in Roman culture and how they viewed sex and the ethics of the day. And it was something like this. It was an honor-shame view. And so what that meant was, they would look around, they'd say, well, what is socially acceptable related to what, with, with, with our bodies? And what that looked like in that day was it was highly stratified. So for example, um, men in high places could essentially do what they want with women, with slaves, and with boys. That was socially acceptable in that day. In marriage, that was mostly for procreation. And so it was viewed to go outside of marriage for pleasure. But I should say that was only for the men. So there was an explicit double standard. And just to notice, even as I'm saying that, you know if you went back to that cultural moment you would be in shock, right? 
You, there'd be a moment where you'd say, this is acceptable? And that's what it was in that day. And yet, one of the things that Kyle Harper notes is that the message of Christianity came to that culture. He actually goes to 1 Corinthians 7. He talks about, in 6, the passages we've been in. And he gets to this point of, so glorify God with your body. And the, ampli- and, and, excuse me, the, the application was this. Sex was for marriage between a man and a woman, and that was it. That was the ethic. And here's what's incredible. People flocked to it. There were elite men who gave their lives to Jesus and in response committed themselves in fidelity to their wife in marriage. Women and slaves heard this message and they heard how because of what Jesus has done and their life and his life and his death and his resurrection gave their bodies, gave their lives dignity, hope, and purpose intrinsically. And they flocked to it. And that, friends, was the first sexual revolution that literally changed how the culture that they viewed sex because it was no longer what's acceptable to the culture. It was, what does God say about this? Therefore, the gospel changed how the culture thought about their bodies. Now, we are certainly living in another day in which there is another sexual revolution. We've kind of talked about it briefly the last couple of weeks. The basic grid of our present moment is you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody. And therefore, how people live today is very different. But one of the things I want to submit to you is this. Christianity has not changed from Moses to Jesus to Paul for 2,000 years of church history, from Catholicism to, 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 to the Protestant church to the Eastern Orthodox church, all across the board, it's been very clear. Sex is designed in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And outside of that, you are to be chaste, abstinent. Now, here's what I'd say. This morning, even if you're here, and that is perhaps prudish, or maybe it's strange, or maybe it's offensive, one of my hopes over the past few weeks has been, at the very least, you would understand why. The roots of it. And and, and the roots of it all grow from the gospel. In other words, sex is about the gospel. It's about a God who created you, male and female. A God who loves you. And because of sin, my sin, your sin, we've been lost. And yet he's come after us in the person and work of Jesus. And therefore, it's not an ethic that merits anything towards God. Rather, it's in response to what he's done through repentance and faith that that changes your life. And then from that, you live in a way that glorifies God with your body. Which leads to our final two weeks, today and next week. Because what Paul does is he unpacks 
what it means practically to glorify God in your body. And there are two callings. One is the calling of marriage. The second is the calling of singleness, or you could say celibacy. And what Paul is going to show us over these two weeks is that these are two equally and actually, actually complementary callings that are actually significant to display God's glory to the world. Now, I know uh, as soon as I say that, we're covering marriage this week, singleness next week, and you might be thinking, well, this week's for those who are married, next week's for those who are single, and I would just say, each week is for all of us. And let me give you a couple reasons why. Firstly, if you're single, Keller notes this, that if you're single, oftentimes you can either undervalue marriage or you can overvalue marriage. And if you do either, it's going to distort your view of it. Therefore, whether you get married or not, it's incredibly wise to know the calling. And then secondly, the reality is, in the church, the family of Christ, you are actually called to love and support those around you who are married. Therefore, you need to know their calling so you can encourage and love them. But then secondly, if you're married, oftentimes in the church, either implicitly or explicitly, the view of being single is one of being kind of plan B, you know? Or kind of like you're not quite complete until you get married. I've heard that from various people And I would say this, particularly in a church like Redeemer City, when you look around, it's predominantly marked, not only, but it's predominantly marked by young marrieds or young families. It's really significant that we understand, that all of us understand, the calling of singleness and celibacy, and the hope and the significance and the importance of it. And so as we look around and we're a family in Christ— We see others with dignity and value and actually a very significant part of the calling to glorify God. So this morning, we're going to hit marriage because that's where Paul starts first. And we're going to talk about glorifying God in sex. So there you go. If that didn't wake you up, I don't know what would. But Paul's going to show us three things about it. He's going to show us the importance of it. He's going to show us the shape of it. And then lastly, he's going to show us the goal. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, we ask you simply, I ask you that the words of my mouth, uh, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight, that you might yet again, through your word, by your spirit, illuminate the person and work of Jesus and apply that to our lives through what we do with our bodies. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, the importance. So let's look for a moment at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, and notice what happens here. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul here is quoting some a faction of the church that is essentially saying, you should practice abstinence in marriage. You shouldn't sleep together. And 
Now, this is, there's a couple reasons why this probably happened. One is, in the Greek culture, if you'll, you remember from a few weeks ago, uh, they viewed the body as bad and the spirit as good. And so the thought was in that day, well, if you don't have sex, then you're going to be much more spiritually enlightened and you'll have more power. So it's possible that that kind of snuck in the church. The other is, is that Paul was the one who planted the church and he was single. And so maybe it was, well, I'm following Paul. Now, keep in mind how strange this sounds. And remember the last couple weeks where we've been. Uh, do you remember um, three weeks ago, we were in chapter five, and Paul was dealing with a completely different view of sex. Not to abstain from sex, but sex as an appetite. So in chapter five, it was a young man sleeping with his stepmom. And then in chapter six, we saw Christian men going to the temple to sleep with prostitutes, which is normal in that day. And so Paul, when he addresses those situations, he says, practice abstinence, knock it off, flee from that, right? And so you could wonder, well, what is Paul going to say here, right? What is Paul going to say to this situation? Maybe he'd be indifferent. Maybe it's optional. Or maybe he would say something like this. I mean, it's kind of dirty, it's kind of gross, but I guess for procreation, go for it. But what's absolutely incredible is that Paul's short answer, as one commentator put it, this whole, this whole text is simply this. Should a couple practice abstinence in marriage? And the answer is an emphatic no. No. So here's the question. And it may sound simple, but it's really not. Why would Paul say outside of marriage practice abstinence? And why would Paul say in marriage don't practice abstinence? In order to understand what's happening here, I want to go back to the passage we were in last week. In 1 Corinthians 6, look at what Paul says here. And this is, Paul's addressing the situation in which men are going to visit prostitutes. And, and look at what he says, writes in verses 15 and 16. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, has a couple notes that are really helpful here. Um, you'll notice in this passage, when Paul's dealing with the situation, he quotes Genesis 2. The two will become one flesh. And you could view that, and you could, you, you could think, well, they're just talking about body parts. That's it, just body parts. Just two bodies coming together, becoming one flesh. But if that were the case, then what Paul would, would in essence, be saying to the Corinthians is this, don't you know that when you have physical union with a prostitute, you have physical union with a prostitute? You get it? It doesn't make any sense. In other words, there's something more going on in the sexual act. There's something deeper. There's something more profound than simply body parts. Anthony Thistleton, commentator, writes this regarding the sexual act. It says, it is a self-commitment which deeply involves the entire person not just body parts. Paul is saying that sex is meant by God to be the full giving of one's entire self to the one to whom 
you belong. So Keller summarizes this. He says, sex was designed to be a radical self-donation of giving yourself to someone completely. The sexual act is in a, in a way of saying, I'm completely yours emotionally, physically, spiritually, economically, and legally. I'm all yours. And here's what's incredible. Scholars note this. No one said anything like this before Paul. No one. These thoughts were revolutionary at the time. Now, I understand these are deeper quotes. We're taking a deep dive here, but let me just come up to the surface for a moment and just say this. Sex was designed to be a commitment apparatus. So think about this way. When Paul's dealing with people who are sleeping around with other people other than their spouse, what is he saying? He's saying, well, on the one hand, it is sinful, but also it actually hurts them. And it hurts you because it was designed to be something that says, I'm completely yours. And when you take the emotional or the economic or the legal out of it, it's not what it was designed for. And Keller notes that you actually are actually hurting the person because you're actually hurting them from the, having the ability to trust and commit to another person. And to flip it where we are now in 1 Corinthians 7, this is why when Paul is dealing with a response to those who are promoting abstinence in marriage, he says no. Why? Well, here's the big idea. <laughs> Marital sex is a gift that is designed to help sustain, strengthen, and actually grow in your commitment with your spouse. It was designed for that. Again, Keller notes this, how it's, it's, a, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. Think about the wedding day where you make these vows. When you come together sexually, it is a renewal of those vows. It is saying, I am completely yours and you are completely mine. And it's there to help sustain and grow. So Paul is showing that it's absolutely important in marriage. And it's not surprising then, verse 2, notice what Paul writes. He says this, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, I want this covenant to be strong. I want this, this commitment to one another to be there. And actually sex is a way of doing that. But, but Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us the shape of it. Um, and it's actually, it, it's, it's nothing short of revolutionary, and it's actually very practical. And here's the shape. Here's how it's supposed to look in marriage. Sex is not to be about getting, but it is to be about giving. Sex is not to be about taking, but it is about giving yourself to the other. And notice what Paul says. There's three verses here where he says this over and over again. Look at verse 3. Paul says this, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Notice Paul uses the language of rights. It's really interesting when we think about rights in our day, right, it's something that someone is due, something that they have an obligation to. 
And Paul uses it here in relationship to sex in the covenant of marriage. But lest you think this can be coercive, notice how Paul does it. He addresses both the husband and he addresses the wife. And notice how he couches it. It is not, as one commentator said, you owe me. Rather, it's I owe you. So that means this. As one pastor put it, if you are here and you are thinking, I hope my spouse hears this, you're not listening. Paul is, (laughs) he is talking to you. You owe them. And this is actually, I'll just say, really practical. Let me give you an example. Oftentimes in marriage, there is one spouse that desires sex more than the other. So when that happens, if you come at sex from an attitude of self-giving and not self-taking, here's what happens. Let's say you, the, the one who desires it approaches the one who normally doesn't desire it, and they come together. Here's what that means. On the one hand, the one who doesn't desire it can actually choose to lovingly give themselves to their spouse. Just to give. It's self-giving. You can serve them. But it also means that maybe the person who initiates it or desires it as they look at their spouse, and maybe they're in a different emotional state or physical state, or they're just tired or what have you, it means you can say, actually, you know what? I can see this, is, this would not be good for you. And don't you understand? That's, that's self-giving. That's, that's, that's not taking. That's not self-serving. So Paul, when he's talking about this, notice this, he's saying the shape of Christian marital sex should be marked by self-giving. But then Paul continues on, and look at what he says in verse 4. He says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Um, This is absolutely stunning for this time period. In that time period, it was the wife who was legally the husband's, but not vice versa. Remember what I said, it was completely okay for a husband to go outside the marriage for sex. Well, it was not okay for the wife. But notice what Paul says here. Paul says to both, you don't don't have your own body. Your body is actually the free possession of the other. So thinking about it this way, when Amanda and I first got married, or actually a week before we got married, um, she got all of her money from her bank account and she brought it over to my bank account. And it was kind of a funny day because uh, she had like $200, you know? It wasn't like she was bringing thousands. And uh, there was a moment where we kind of joked because it was like we put it in and I, I didn't have that much either, but you know, more than 200, I think. And... Um, I don't know why I said that. Sorry, dear. <laughs> I had more debt, so she came out with no debt. So um, anyway, 
So we put it in, and, um, you know, the reality was at that moment, once we got married, it was like, hey, this is ours. This is, I didn't, I wasn't like, hey, babe, this is your $200, do, do with what you want, and the rest is mine. It was, no, it was both ours. And what did we do? And we worked out a mutual budget together. That's, we, that's what we continue to do. We don't mark it. And the same is true with your body, with your spouse. It's not unilateral. It's a, it's a relationship. And that means, in, in one measure or another, it's like what, what you do in sex, what you're comfortable with, all that stuff, it's worked out together mutually. Why? Because it's, according to Paul, it's, it's, it's not your own. There's also one more thing. Look, and look at verse 5. Paul says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul allows for one concession to abstain from sex. And notice what it is. It's to heighten your marriage and its relationship to God through prayer. That's the one concession he makes. And notice, he says, only if you both agree. And two, um, only for a time, which means it, it's got to end at some point. That's the one concession he makes. And one of the things that's interesting about this is Paul uses this term, stop defrauding one another. It means, in one way or another, it, it means don't deprive your spouse of what rightfully belongs to them. Again, he's dealing with a situation in which people are basically doing that. But here's, here's, a, here's a really helpful principle through verse 5. Here's what this means. Um, it means in your marriage, you should work at being devoted to one another sexually. Listen, listen for a moment. This is not easy. Think about it for a moment. Um, this means in the midst of the stress at work, right? This means, you know, if God gives you kids, that doesn't make it any easier, right? It means through seasons of suffering or sickness or grieving. Um, it means, nevertheless, that you are devoted to it, that you are committed to it. And remember why. Because this is a gift that God's given you to strengthen, sustain, and grow your covenant. That's why you should be committed to it. All right, one more thing. The goal. Um, Imagine for a moment, you were traveling across country and you got to Wyoming. In the middle of Wyoming, someone said to you, hey, um, I hear you're from Wisconsin. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm from Wisconsin. What's that like? And you said, oh, come over here. You kind of knelt down, got them by your car, and you showed them the license plate. And then you know right at the bottom it says America's Dairy Land. Top right was this kind of red barn, and there's some... There's some things that are flying. And you said, there it is. There's Wisconsin. 
There it is. Would this person know Wisconsin? I mean, sort of, right? I mean, there's red barns, right? There's birds. We are the dairy land. We got cheese. But you would, of course, realize that that was a signpost that represents Wisconsin. Um, when Paul says, glorify God with your bodies, and he, imp- and he unpacks the marital covenant and sex and marriage, Paul is saying, that's a license plate. It's a signpost. It points to something. I wonder if you heard it. Think about, we were just talking about the shape of sex and marriage. Did you, did you notice the difference? Think it with me for a moment. Why, why would there be mutual giving of one another and not self-serving? Well, don't you understand? It's a mirror. Because Jesus has come not to be served, but to serve. Think about the shape of your body not being your own. What do we see in the gospel? We see Jesus, right, coming and giving us his body and purchasing us. We saw last week, that means we're no longer, our body's not our own. Or how about the devotion, the commitment? Do you understand how Christ's love for his church through thick and thin, it is one of commitment. He will not leave it. He will not forsake it. Don't you understand? Sex and marriage is to be a preview, a signpost. If you thought it was ridiculous that you would describe Wisconsin with a license plate, then what sex is pointing to is something like that. One author put it this way, it is to be a picture of the joy and of the ecstasy of the final union on the final day in Revelation 19 of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage between Christ and the church. In other words, if you can imagine the best sex in the world, That's only a faint glimpse of what is to come in relationship to God. So, those who are married, hear this today. In your marriage, cultivate and steward the gift of sex for the glory of God, not by taking, not by getting, but by giving yourself to the other so that might strengthen, sustain, and might grow your marriage. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for this signpost that points to the joy and ecstasy of the relationship that we will experience in your presence one day. 
Lord, we pray that in the midst of the marriages in this room, that you would help each one of them reflect the shape of the gospel. And may it strengthen them to your glory and to our good. In Christ's name, amen.